0: Shortly after I graduated college, uh, I met a college student about two years younger than me when I was traveling, and I got to bring the gospel to her and imagine how excited I get when I get to explain the gospel to someone. Uh, this young woman uh, had a, a kind of a tragic and, and, and interesting story. She was a good storyteller, good to listen to. Uh, the way she described things was so heartbreaking though. She, was, uh, she just described herself as a very insecure person and the way that she handled her insecurity was through promiscuity with, with men, uh, often bouncing around between many different men. Uh, And this, of course, would lead her to feel even more insecure about herself because she would understand just what she was doing to herself. And before God, she must be really defiling herself. And so that would make her even more insecure, which would then drive her even more to more promiscuity. And caused this endless loop that she was just dying to get out of. And so, you can imagine how much I beamed as I got to tell her of God's free grace offered to all sinners, and that, that there is not any sin you could ever commit that Jesus' blood is not enough to cover and to pay for, that all she had to do was turn and to trust Him. And she had many questions about that, and many questions about what God's design was for marriage, and that seemed to be better to her than what she was living. And, oh, it seemed like God was working so much. And at the end of the conversation, Uh, she just asked if she could think on these things, and uh, she gave me her email address, and that would be the last time we'd ever see each other. It was one of those one-time-you-bump-into-each-other conversations, and she asked, would you email me in a couple of weeks and just let me think about these things, and and, uh, and maybe we'll talk some more about them. And so I left it there. And uh, later on this morning, I'll tell you how that second conversation went, but I want to leave it there for now, because people who are in the situation she was in Uh, If I could go back to that day and talk to her again, uh, I think I would take her to today's sermon text, to, to what we're going to look at today, because it speaks a profound word to those of us who look to God and wonder, why would he ever want to redeem me of all people? All right, some of us wonder, well, I can understand God having grace for other people and being a graceful God, but grace for me after what I have done? Well, those of us who feel that way, Isaiah 66, one and two, is really going to speak to us, I pray, today. But that's something for the rest of us also. Even if you've never felt that way before, even if you have confidence in your standing before God because of Jesus Christ, uh, it can speak to us as well because... If you live here in Greenwood, my guess is you've probably been to multiple churches in Greenwood. Maybe you have friends and family that go to other churches. You visited them sometimes. Maybe you went to a few before you landed here. And you have seen that even in our little neck of the woods, there are many, many different ways to worship God, aren't there? There's so many different styles and skins you can put on it and all kinds of different patterns in worship. And it can be kind of confusing to look around and see so many different ways and styles of worshiping God and wonder who's doing it right? Right? Like, it's, it's, it's all so different. And even more, are am I doing it right? Is God pleased with what I am offering to Him? Well, the surface-level questions today's text won't answer, uh, but it will take us to the heart of the matter and show us, at the core, what is the difference between worship that pleases God and worship that does not please God. So let's give, for the next half hour, 35 minutes or so, let's give all of our attention to the words of the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 66, verses one through four. Here is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of fragrances is like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when they called, when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight, the words of the Lord. So what we have in these words is a contrast of true worship against false worship. And through it, I believe the Lord wants to call us away from any remaining hypocrisy that might be in our hearts and call us to a true fear of God. I have prayed and I continue to pray even now that he will use this text to free us from any empty worship that we may be offering to God and to give us trembling hearts before him. Now to break it down as simply as I can, verses one and two give us a picture of the sort of heart that God delights in when it comes to him in worship. And verses 3 and 4 give us the contrasting picture of the sort of heart that God does not delight in when we come to Him in worship. And so if we're wondering, okay, is God pleased with what I'm offering Him? It's as simple as, am I the person that verse 1 and 2 describes, or am I the person that verses 3 and 4 describe? And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time on 1 and 2, and then we'll spend some time on 3 and 4 and just outline what it is the Lord is giving to us, what kind of picture He's giving us here in these words. Verses 1 and 2 tell us of the special delight that God has in those who respond rightly to his word. Uh, It begins talking about his throne and footstool, comparing it to the temple. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, which is a grand picture, isn't it? God sitting on the throne of heaven and his feet resting on the earth as his footstool. Now, that's a grand and awesome picture to us. It would have been kind of a shocking picture to anybody in Isaiah's day who read it, because they were used to their Bible saying that something else is God's footstool, not the earth, but the temple. The Psalms, we actually even read rather recently, uh, come let us gather in the house of God, right? The temple, let us worship at his footstool, right? The temple is often called the footstool of God in the Bible. And even Jesus would call the temple the footstool later. He would say, don't swear by the temple because it is the footstool of God. So, so the main picture here is actually the temple is the footstool of God, but here, God complements that by saying, well, actually, actually the whole earth is my footstool and and what is this temple that you would build for me right really of all the things in the universe the temple right what is the house you would build for me what is the place of my rest of all these things that my hand has made the temple you have built for me is not the most impressive of all these things you can you can almost picture him holding the universe in his hand and Having to zoom in countless times like you do on your phone or on your tablet just to get into the temple, right? He's got the whole universe and he's got to zoom in to one quadrant here where the Milky Way is and zoom in some more to get to the Milky Way and then zoom in a whole bunch more to get to the solar system where we are. And then, you know, to our eyes, we wouldn't even be able to see Earth at that scale, but he can. So he zooms in on the little speck of dust that's Earth and then zooms in some more on the Middle East and some more on Israel. And then, oh, there it is. There is the temple that they have built for me. This is not the most impressive thing in all creation to God. Now, the point is not that they shouldn't have built the temple. In fact, he told them to build the temple. He told them when, and he told them how. And the point is not that he doesn't rest his presence in the temple for them. He did then, and he promised to, and he kept that promise. His point is, he says, guys, I own it all, and I'm not confined to four walls, in fact, of all of the things I have made, the temple really is not the most impressive. There is somewhere in the universe, probably a star going into supernova right now that we know nothing about. He has been gazing at the Horsehead Nebula since long before the Hubble telescope saw into its wonders. How insignificant could that building of gold and stone and wood and silver be to him. No, it is not the most impressive thing that anyone has ever made for him that he has ever made. So his eye of delight does not particularly rest on the temple as if he is impressed there. And that is all set up for what comes next, right? He says, okay, of all the things in the universe, the temple's not the most impressive one for me. Well, there is something that is very dear to him, very delightful to him of all the things in the universe, and that's what he gives us in the rest of verse two. But this, not the temple, this is the one to whom I will look. To He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. You want to know what delights God? It's not a building with a lot of gold. No, it's a heart that responds when He speaks. That's precious to God. These words, humble and contrite, one who is humble and contrite in spirit, this describes someone who would come to God expecting to receive the lowest place from him, totally aware, painfully aware that they could do nothing that would impress God. They would offer him no gift that would win him over, for they have nothing to offer. Totally aware of how their conduct compared to his holiness will never be enough to measure up to his standard. Like a child, you know, sometimes a child will, will sin against their mother or father, and some children will lash out in anger and find anybody else to blame and handle it any other way, and some children will just hang their head and say, oh, mom, I'm sorry. This is the humble and contrite heart that says, I know, I ruined it. I am no good before you. Woe is me, I'm ruined. That heart, he says, is tender and precious to him above all the things in the universe. This heart is not like a mighty cedar tree before God. This heart is like a little twig before God. And when the Lord speaks to this little twig of his holiness, when the Lord speaks of his standard for mankind to this little twig, the Lord speaks of his mighty acts of judgment in the scriptures. It is like a hurricane force wind blowing upon this little twig. And that twig, you better believe, is going to tremble before the mighty words of God. But God says, I don't discount that little twig. In fact, that is what is delightful to me in all of the universe. That is so important because some of you, I imagine, are a lot like the young woman I talked to that day who can see just how wrong everything you have done is and would look up to God and wonder, okay, I can understand grace for these other people, but, but how could God ever have grace for me, right? Yes, them, why me? No, not, not after what I've done. He, he must not know what I have done if you think he is willing to have grace for me. There are some of you who must feel that way this very morning, and I want you to know that if that is you, God's eye of delight and love rests especially upon you, this morning, you, you think that God loves you less than other people. God does not love you less than other people. If these words are true, God loves you more than other people. This is the one to whom I will look to you is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles. At my word. Oh, may that be said of every last one of us. So, this is a a zoomed in teaching to God's delight in the heart that trembles before Him. If we were to zoom out and look at the whole picture of Scripture, what we'd see is that this is part of a, a very big pattern of what tends to happen. And and the pattern is very simply this, when God speaks, things tend to shake. Things tremble when God speaks at them. And this happens in the very first chapter of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, and really all the way through it as well. God speaks and says, let the let the dry land come out of the water and let the earth appear. And can you imagine the trembling and the sound of the rocky mountains and the Himalayas and the Antarctica and all of it just coming out of the ocean, how quickly those waters must have fled as the earth rose up. The sound must have been deafening the shaking at that day, and all the Lord said was, let The waters separate and let the dry land appear out of it. And all of this shaking and noise is made. Later on, the Lord would speak his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the scripture says that him speaking this law caused an earthquake. The Psalms get poetic about it and say the mountains skip like rams and the hills like lambs. you have seen a billy goat jump around. Some of you have seen billy goats hop around. It describes the mountains hopping around like this when all the Lord did was speak his holy law and write the Ten Commandments to Moses. Why? Because when he speaks, things tremble and things shake. This is the power of his word. The Psalms say that the voice of the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. Have you seen the redwoods out in California, the voice of the Lord can turn them to mulch as soon as he speaks, because when he speaks, things tremble, things shake. The Lord Jesus cries out as he's being crucified from the cross, and an earthquake happens. And this is all just a buildup to the final day when the Lord speaks the final word of judgment. He says in the book of Hebrews, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens the stars in the sky shaking and trembling as he speaks his final word of judgment. The earth shaking and trembling and all of us shaking and trembling. This is what happens when God speaks. Whether he's speaking of his glory or of his holy law or of his mercy or of his judgment, whether he is speaking to the earth itself or to human hearts, the response must always be the same. We tremble and we shake at the sight of his glory and the sound of his word. Sometimes what he does is speak these words just directly to a human heart. And instead of the earth shaking, it's the heart that trembles and shakes and says, God has spoken to me. This is a heart that is ready to cry out for salvation to Jesus Christ. We get a lot of real life examples of that in the scripture. God speaking to people and and them trembling. Uh, one of them is actually this very prophet Isaiah. We read of him a few weeks ago, right? In chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord in his glory, doesn't he? And he cries out, "Woe to me for I am ruined," right? Just trembles before God. And then why? Well, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among the people of unclean lips. Here is a man who is trembling before God and receives grace and delight from God as a result. We have a big picture of it in the book of Ezra. It's predicted in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, The Lord says, when I give you the land, uh, your hearts are gonna become hard, he says, over generations. And eventually they're gonna become so hard, you're gonna be so faithless that I'm gonna send you out into exile. You're gonna be taken to another land that is not your own, And yet while you are there and as you return, he says, I will give to you a trembling heart. And sure enough, the book of Ezra tells the story of a priest named Ezra who dedicates himself to studying the law of the Lord and living in obedience to it and teaching it. And as he begins to teach it, those who respond are described in three different places in Ezra as those who tremble before the word of God. He simply reads the law, and the people begin to gather around and hear of their unfaithfulness before God, and they tremble. And Ezra begins to weep and fast in front of them. And he prays, God, I am so ashamed. And they tremble. They call a meeting of all of Israel to come together and the law is read and they tremble at the voice of God. And they look to Ezra and say, okay, what do we do? Whatever we gotta do to make it right. We cry out for salvation. What do we do? See it in the New Testament too. Paul and his companion are in jail in Philippi. There's a great earthquake and they're freed The jailer sees this glory, sees God's power, and he trembles and falls down before him. He says, what must I do to be saved? Here's a man who trembles as God's glory is revealed to him. And he says, guys, whatever it is, whatever the path of salvation is, I cry out for it. How can I be saved? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the one who is humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at his word, that is the one to whom the Lord looks. Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. A Pharisee, very righteous looking, and he comes into the temple and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other people, and look how wonderfully I worship. And he walks away, and the tax collector just looks to God and beats his chest and says, Have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. And it's the humble and contrite tax collector who walks away justified and not the self-righteous Pharisee. Why? Because of these words here. This is the one to whom I look, the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. The reason that these hearts are so precious to God, these, these tremble and fearful hearts are so precious to him is because that is a heart that is ready to cry out to Jesus for salvation. This is a heart that knows it needs to be saved and thus is willing to look to him to receive it. I'll give you an illustration of this. I wonder if you have ever taken your car and just you know, pulled it out of the garage into the driveway, you know, a little eight-foot journey, or if you've moved it from one parking spot to another or backed out of the spot. You weren't quite right in and aligned right and gotten back in. And I wonder if you didn't put on your seatbelt when you did that. Now, your mom taught you to put on your seatbelt, right? But you might not have right then. And why not? Well, because you didn't really sense any threat of danger, right? If you you don't feel like you're in any danger, you're not going to do anything to keep yourself safe from this danger, Many of us go through life and we hear of God's holiness and our sin and His judgment and we don't, never sensed any danger. And if if you don't tremble like this, if you don't sense that His judgment is real well, you're not going to be interested in being saved from it. The same way the person who doesn't think that the journey they're about to take in the car is very dangerous isn't really interested in putting their seatbelt on. You're not interested in looking to God and receiving salvation from something that you don't really think is a threat and you aren't really concerned about. But the heart that hears His word and trembles, the heart that hears His word and knows its stance before God, there's a heart that knows it needs to be saved. There is a heart that when it hears of the grace of God, says, oh, at last, it just clasps onto it. And this is why a heart like this is so delightful to God because he loves to give out the gospel. He loves to give forgiveness. And here is a heart that is ready to receive it. And so to those of you who tremble like this before God's word and who stand in fear before God and wonder, why would he ever accept me? I want you to see that what God is doing in your heart is he is plowing it so that it can be ready to receive the seed of the gospel. I have thrown down grass seed on my lawn that is mostly made of clay soil. It's very hard and two years in a row I've done it and the seed never took, right? Because it's hard clay soil. The suns baked the clay. But soil that is soft, soil that has been plowed by a rake or by a plow is ready to receive Seed. And if the Lord has made your heart like this this morning, he's made you ready to receive the gospel. He's made you ready to cry out for salvation. And so of all the things in the world, what I want you to know is that the death of Jesus Christ is more than enough to cover for every one of your last sins. You can stand before God right now if you want to, confident, simply because you have trusted in Jesus and his death is enough to cover for you. So don't just tremble before him cry out to him for salvation. They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has prepared you for it. God has made you ready for it. Would you receive that salvation now? I call to you. For those of us that do, this trembling before God looks a little different. We still tremble before him. Christians are still said to fear God, but it looks a little different. Now, on one hand, the book of 1 John says there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, right? So, we're not supposed to be afraid of God. On the other hand, we just read in the Psalms, with you is forgiveness, and therefore you are feared. i right? try to connect the dots on that. Wait, are we supposed to fear God? To... I thought we weren't supposed to, and now we're supposed to. What's going on there? What's going on is the word fear, like the word tremble, can have either a positive or a negative meaning. You've probably trembled in terror of something before when you were scared, and you've probably also trembled in happiness over something that was incredible before also. Well, the word tremble can be used both ways like that. The word fear can as well, although today we get confused because we mostly only use it negatively. What happens to a Christian is hinted at in this text but not explicitly said until later in the New Testament. Now, what he said here earlier was that the temple was not what he looks to, right? It's the trembling heart that he looks to, right? That's not the one to whom I look. This is the one to whom I look. What's implied there, but not explicitly said, is that the hearts that tremble before him are not just what his eye looks to to delight in, but that his eye looks to to dwell in as well. God dwells now, not in temples made by hands, but in hearts that tremble before him. And that is why the book of 1 Corinthians says your body, Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's very spirit dwells in those who have trembled before him like this, cast themselves on Jesus for salvation. He lives there. He dwells there. And that spirit is called a comforter in the scripture. He is called a helper. He is called the one who comes alongside. And so we can say things with a positive sense now of, in you there is forgiveness and therefore you are feared. But we don't mean that we're scared of him. We mean that we tremble with delight and awe and wonder before him because this great God has forgiven us we can say things like what Philippians says, that we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not negative, but positive, because it is God who works in us. He is working and so we tremble in awe and wonder and we bear the fruit of good deeds, working out that salvation and fear and trembling. Why? Because he lives within us. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. This is what a Christian trembling before God looks like. And Part of that trembling is delighting to hear His Word, waiting for it with our ears open, hearing it, receiving it, and trembling with joy when we hear it. There is the heart of Christian worship, trembling before the Word of God with forgiveness and joy. So there's the special delight that God has in those who tremble at his word. And I pray that is you today. Verses three and four tell us the opposite. They contrast it with a picture of the special distaste that God has for those who refuse to respond to his word. He begins this with four pictures in a row, the first four lines of verse three, Uh, that are all the same picture, somebody who is offering technically perfect worship before God, but the Lord does not like the word. Even though it's perfect, even though it's done right, the Lord does not like it and does not receive it. He gives us four pictures of this. We'll walk through it in verse three. He says, he who slaughters an ox first, that's a a really good gift in the Levitical law. It's a big, mm, God should be pleased with that, right? He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. That's Breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So, this person is offering great and perfect gifts in the temple, and yet God sees them as murdering someone instead of offering a gift. It's a big contrast, right? Next is the same idea. He who sacrifices a lamb, that is a prescribed and well received offering in the book of Leviticus, is like one who breaks a dog's neck. That's an unclean offering, right? The nations around did that to their pagan gods, but the Lord did not ask that of his people. Thirdly, the one that presents a grain offering, that's another good and prescribed gift, and yet the Lord receives it like one who offers pig's blood. Pigs were an unclean animal. The Lord wanted nothing to do with that in the temple, an abomination to bring pig's blood to him. Some were bringing rightful gifts, and God was receiving it like pig's blood, And then lastly, the same idea, one who brings a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. So he's saying of these people that he is talking about, there's no fault in the gifts that they are bringing. And yet, God looks upon it the same way he looks upon idolatry, murder, and abominable offerings. You're thinking, why? Why? Why is it that they did what he said to do, right? They offered the gifts the way he said to offer the gifts. Well, the next two lines tell us why. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So these are people who are bringing proper gifts before God right to the letter of the law, but when they walk away, they're doing whatever they want to do and offending God with their conduct. These are people who are hearing God's word in the temple, ignoring it and refusing to live in it when they go away. This is like if a a teenage daughter were about to go out with her friends and she's saying goodbye to her father on the way out. And he, he reviews the plan before they go. And he says, okay, so you're only going to go to this place that we talked about, right? And she says, yes, dad. And he says, and you're going to stay with this adult and this group of friends the whole time. And the adult will keep an eye on you guys, keep you safe. Yes, dad. Uh, and you'll be home by 10 o'clock. Yes, dad, I'll be home by 10 o'clock. And then she leans in and she kisses him on the cheek. And she says, bye, dad, I love you. And then she walks out the door. But then... Instead of going to the place where she said she would go, she goes somewhere else. And instead of staying with a friend group and with the adult, she runs off with her boyfriend. And instead of coming home at 10, she stays at night with her boyfriend. Now, when the father sees her again, he might say, that kiss you gave me on the way out the door did not mean very much to you, did it? no, it wasn't genuine. She had no intention of doing what he was asking her to do. And so that kiss had none of the warmth that a daughter's kiss should have to a father. Israel was treating temple worship like that. They were coming in, offering the gifts just like they were supposed to. I love you, God. Here you go. Here's a kiss on the cheek, leaving and doing whatever abominations they wanted to do. And the Lord said, that gift didn't mean very much to you, did it? Certainly doesn't mean much to me. You may as well have been offering to an idol. You may as well have been offering pig's blood. You may as well have been murdering each other in the temple if you're going to offer false and hypocritical gifts to me. Now, if the Lord especially loves hearts that tremble and respond to his word, verse 4 shows us his feelings for these fake worshipers who refuse to respond to his words. And they are hard words. He says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. He says, I have spoken to them and they have not trembled today so they will tremble tomorrow. This is the heart that God has toward those who refuse to respond to his invitations of grace, who refuse to respond to his ways when he lays them out before us. And may it be true of none of us today. This is a lot like the Pharisee in that story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, isn't it? It comes before God shows off about his tithes that he gives and his fasts that he does twice a week. But he truly isn't righteous before God, and so he walks away unjustified. The Lord looks at their worship the same way. And today, there are many people who live this way too. This, this is a timeless problem. Those of us who would come before God and place our confidence and how right our worship is, right? We're the ones who do it right, and so God must have favor upon us rather than all these other people who do it differently from us, but once out of the building, live life not according to God's way, who hear God speak his words from pulpits every Sunday and don't live within the word that they have heard spoken to him, though they are confident in how well they worship him. In different types of churches, this can look differently. In a very modern church, it might look like someone who would see a, a traditional church like ours and would be really quick to point out how lifeless we are in our worship, and we don't worship our hands, and we don't raise our hands, we don't clap our hands, and we don't do all these exuberant things that other churches do. They would look at us like this, but would walk out of their own churches not living under the preaching that they are hearing. And in traditional churches, it is just the opposite. This would be someone who has a very good eye for how wrong everybody else is worshiping and all the problems in modern worship and the triteness that is there and the concert-like atmosphere and somebody who could just write a really good blog post condemning all of that, but does not take seriously the ongoing sin in their own life when God confronts it in his holy word. These are those who have confidence in how they worship him, but take with little seriousness, the sin in their own lives and the calls God gives them to change. And here's the scary thing about it. If someone were like this, right, very particular about worshiping God just right, but not living in his word outside of the church, where would they be at 11.30 on Sunday morning? Right here, right? And here's what's even more scary. Would the person in the pulpit, without access to everybody's private lives and not following everybody around and not knowing what you're doing when we're not together, would the guy in the pulpit know who is who and who is actually following the Lord's word throughout the week and who is not? No, no, the man in the pulpit wouldn't know the difference. And so, so when we have a gathering like this and we hear a word like this, We have to assume there must be some of us here who meet this very description, and the most frightening thing to me is that I would not know the difference. You could pull the wool over my eyes just as much as you could pull the wool over your own. If that is you, if you have heard God's word spoken and refuses to tremble before it, let these words be what makes you tremble today. He says, because when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, I did not listen, but they chose to do what is evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. He says, I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. If you would worship before God, but refuse to hear his word and respond to it, friend, this may offend you, but you may as well be at a mosque this morning if you would worship God and not respond to the word that he gives you. You may as as well be singing the most vile and offensive song that you know to him this morning, if you would hear his word and not respond to it. He says, when I called, they did not answer. And when I spoke, they did not listen. And yet God gives you these words now, so that your heart might tremble even this day, so that you might say, I have lived my whole life not responding to God's word, but no more. I cry out to God for salvation and cry out that he would change me. It is not too late, no matter how old or young you are, to do that very thing right now, to tremble, to look to him, and to cry out to salvation. So I call you. If I'm talking to you, do that even right now as we talk. So there is then the difference between true worship and false worship. A heart that responds with trembling to God's word or a heart that is hard and refuses to receive it. There's the difference at the heart. Earlier I told you that story about the young woman I met that I emailed later after I'd talked to her about the gospel. And the hardest part about that story to me is, is the way it ends. I reached, I reached out to her again talked about these things again, said, what do do you think about this? Would you receive this salvation? And her response was, that's the most wonderful story I've ever heard. And I have wanted to believe it this whole time. It would be so wonderful if it were true. But I just can't believe that God would have grace for me. And after that, she would hear no more of it. And that was the end of that. It breaks my heart because she went from being the first kind of person to being the second kind of person. She went from being one who trembled before God's word to one to whom God called and she did not listen and she did not answer. So, my warning to all of us is it is possible to go from the first to the second. It is possible to hear the words of God tremble for a moment and then refuse it. Often, what is going on when this happens, I think, is that we are trembling not at God's word about us, but at our own words about ourselves. That's what an insecure heart does, right? We condemn ourselves and we tremble at our own condemnation of ourselves. And since what we are trembling before is not God's word about us, but what we think of ourselves, our own feelings and negative thoughts about ourselves, well, then when God offers another word, well, we won't listen to it either because we didn't listen to the first, we were listening to ourselves the whole time. And if you are in that trap, uh, my warning to you is don't slip into becoming the second kind of person who will not hear God's words when they're given to you, but instead, go back and ask, what am I trembling before? Am I trembling because of my own self-loathing, because of my verdict about myself, or am I trembling because of what God's word says? Receive his words about you, about your life, about himself, and then you will be ready to receive his word of grace that is offered to you. And that is my prayer for all of us in this room, that we would receive that word of grace and tremble with joy before him. May there be not one soul in this room who walks out today with our confidence in how right we are doing it. But may we all place our confidence in Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us, and may we tremble with joy at his word. Let's pray.